summertime is beach time in Portugal, especially along its scenic southern coast. Coming up, we'll hear what the Algarve region offers for memorable family vacations, as well as off-season beachcombers. And just discovering on the rocks the little shells and the clams and the, the stars. The food scene is fantastic because you're right there on the water. You get every kind of fresh seafood you can imagine. In the South Pacific, the waters of Fiji offer some of the world's best coral reef diving, and the Fijian culture invites you to relax. That might include a welcome ceremony where you're offered a drink made from the bitter kava root. The first thing that you usually feel is that your tongue goes numb, and then you feel very mellow and relaxed. We'll also hear how listeners have been faring during the pandemic and what this strange time in our world has taught them. It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Bula Bula. My Facebook friends are a fun community of curious travelers, and you're invited to join in. To stow away with me in my work, play, politics, philanthropy, and travels, follow me at Rick Steves on Facebook. The indigenous cultural values of Fiji help to find it as someplace special among the island nations of the South Pacific. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, Fiji travel expert Minal Hadratwala fills us in on what helps make Fiji a major player today in Oceania. We'll also open the phones later in the hour to check in on how nearly two years of a global pandemic have changed your world. Let's start out today on the beaches of southern Portugal. The Algarve region offers 100 miles of warm sun and a collection of charming resort towns from Land's End to the Spanish border. Our guides are Cristina Duarte and Robert Wright. They specialize in showcasing the highlights of Portugal and the Algarve to American visitors. Cristina, Robert, bon dia. Thank you. Thank you. Obrigada. So when we think of the Algarve, Cristina, what does it mean to, the, to a Portuguese? Holidays. <laughs> it's where we go to holidays with our families. Nice. And normally, because it is, the kids are in school until the end of June, so everybody goes at the same time. So July and August can be pretty crowded. But if we have a chance and going out of July or August, it is a marvelous place to go. Wonderful beaches, wonderful food, very good offer of, uh, of places where to stay, hotels, and also houses that we can rent houses or apartments. And June is absolutely beautiful until the first week of July. It's quiet. So that is interesting that there's a huge bell-shaped curve of demand. And in the summer, summertime vacation, yes. it's everybody's down there. Yes. Now, Robert, uh, when you think of the popularity among locals, and, and you were a local, are the locals looking for a big resort or are they looking for the cute little little cove or the little town that hides away? I think away? Uh, locals are looking for uh, just basically good, nice, relaxing beaches wherever they may be. Right. Because uh, what Christina was saying is it's kind of like when you go off-season, a little bit off-season, uh, you have to think that you can't go to Nazare. You can't go to the beaches that are up north because the weather's still not quite Oh, that's a good, good point. Because there are good beach resorts sure. north of Lisbon. Sure. But if you're a little bit shoulder season, mm-hmm. you want to go in the you south. You want to go south because you're guaranteed good weather. Down there by Morocco. Yeah. Now, when you go to the south, uh, I'm sure that every region of Portugal has some different cuisine. What do you think about to enjoy the food scene when you're on the Algarve? The food scene is fantastic because you're right there on the water. You get every kind of fresh seafood you can imagine. Oh. And I guess the, the best expression of that in Portugal is the is the dish that everybody goes there for. It's the cataplana. Yes. The cataplana is like just a big, big mix of all this great seafood, some potatoes, juicy broth. It's just really like the essence of the Algarve. 
If I have a joy meter, it just went off the chart with both of you here when you said the word cataplana. <laughs> yeah. Cataplana. Christina, what do you think? Of what's, what's in a cataplana? Cataplana is all kind of fish. It's basically, the cataplana is the name, not of the recipe, but is the name of the pot. And it's a fun it's thing to pot. buy as a souvenir. Yeah. Yes, I noticed yes, yes, a lot yes. of people like to it's buy the cataplana. It's a copper clam-shaped pot, mm-hmm. so tw- it's like a double pot yep. with the, the pot and the cover, and we slice uh, onions, potatoes, and the fish in raw, mm-hmm. and we just leave it to steam in very low cooking. Okay. So all the flavors of the fish, mm. the different ones, are there. So more variety of fish you have, more it, it becomes good, of course. Now, when I'm researching the chapter in our Portugal guidebook uh, for Salema, which mm-hmm. is my favorite town on the Algarve, Every restaurant is so proud of their cataplana. Oh, yes. Mm. yes. And, and each one must be a little bit different. Uh, Robert, how, how could a cataplana be different from one restaurant to the next? It, well, first of all, the depending on the catch of the day, whatever yeah. is available, that's yeah. one, one thing. Another would be maybe the type of vegetables you add to it. You could add red peppers. You could not add red peppers. Yeah. Uh, you could add different spices if you wanted so to. So there's a variety of spices. There's a variety so of things you can do to it, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Sort of a, sometimes a, a little bit cream. For the, sure. A little bit cream. You could add mm-hmm. cream. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Okay. These are like nice little old-style pressure cookers. And you can also, because it, it, it's a lot of fish, you can split it. Can you order yeah, You have to. You have so to. These are big. Yeah. These are big. Yeah, these <laughs> yes. Are, you wouldn't, you wouldn't uh, go to Spain and order paella for one. Okay. So you I certainly gotcha. wouldn't go to Portugal and order cataplana for one. That's a good way to put mm-hmm. it. Now, when we think of the Algarve, there's basically two halves, geographically and personality-wise. How would you characterize the East and the West, Robert? Uh, I would say the East is a little bit more laid back, less touristy, a little bit... Um, Seems less dramatic to me. It is less it dramatic. It is less dramatic. Less dramatic. Yes. There's, yeah. there's less uh, yeah, hubbub and like not right. really a lot of stuff going because on. Because in the West, you've got these postcard perfect rock formations right. that people just love. Yes. What are we talking about? There, uh, we are talking about rock formations by the sea and it, we can actually visit them because they are in many uh, small town fishing towns. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can either organize your tour on the caves by a, a local company. So the big city Lagos. Yes. And they have little $15 yes. boat yeah, rides yeah, out yes. to the rocks. Yes, it is about one hour mm-hmm. and it's very nice because you can get actually inside of these caves and you have this emerald beautiful sea colors mm. and also the formation of the caves of the rocks mm. are absolutely beautiful. Mm. Uh, but if a person is in a smaller place like Salima, you might find, you know, a fisherman that has a little boat. Has a boat. We'll yes, take a little boat and takes you out for a while, yeah. for a half an hour. Now that's yes. a fun way for a fisherman yes. to make a little extra yes, money yes, and it's exactly. a fun way for a tourist yes. to have an unforgettable experience. That's With a local. Yeah, with, with a, a local. local. Very nice. Our guides to Portugal on Travel with Rick Steves are Lisbon-based Cristina Duarte and Robert Wright, who'd lived in Lisbon for many years and is now based in neighboring Sevilla in Spain. We have links to our guests with this week's show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. Gary's calling from Rochester in New York. Gary, have you been to Portugal? Uh, I have, I have, and uh, to your guest, Bon dia. Bon dia. All right. So what was your experience in the Algarve, Gary? I had come back from Morocco, and I was a graduate student. I was traveling around, and uh, I was in Huelva, in the uh, southwest corner of Spain. And some friends I had known said, uh, if you get that close, you got to go over to the Algarve. And uh, my ultimate destination was Lisboa, but the train takes you right along the coast. 
Mm-hmm. And um, I stopped in Faro, and you're right. It's, Faro is, is not a tourist town that I recall, mm-hmm. uh, but it's a beautiful small town, and you can get around in it, and there's some wonderful people there. Mm-hmm. Did you find an expat community down there? Because I know a lot of Brits like to head down to the south coast of Portugal. I've got a friend who retired down there. Yep. Actually, uh, I asked some people in town where's a good place to stay, and they said there's a, a small hotel on the village square, and they had Portuguese flags and British flags out in front. So I said, so I'm going to try that. And I went in, and uh, it was a couple from England. They had been there, opened the place for a few years before, and uh, they had a nice little British happy hour, kind of a British pub. They sent me to a restaurant called uh, Fin del Mundo, the end of the earth. Huh. I ended up going to this restaurant for three nights in a row while I was staying in Faro. And I'll tell your your guests, this was a while ago, so it's not this cheap, but I think it was $3 or, or $4. I got a, a half a liter of wine and a plate of uh, biggest pieces of fish I had ever seen, to mm. potatoes <laughs> and bread. And I just sat there and ate and drank my heart out. You know, when you find a fun little local restaurant like that and just nice house wine and some fresh seafood, uh, you almost feel like, is this right when you get the bill? It's it's very affordable. Oh, and it is fun. It, this Rick, it, it was beautiful. I and, mean, you know, you get on the train... And it takes you over through Albufera and that coastal area and those beaches yeah. and they, the locals, they pull the boats up on the sand and uh, it's fantastic. Anybody who's not been there should make it a, a priority. It's really uh, not expensive, but it's one of the most beautiful spots I've been to. So, and you were just heading from southern Spain to Lisbon and you sort of um, hopped off the train and you, you discovered the Algarve. Gary, thanks so much for your call. You're welcome. Thanks, Rick. Take care. That's very good point, is that the train transportation is good, and there's this wonderful sort of mix of expats and Portuguese. Robert, you're, you're an expat there. Uh, it's kind of a nice, easygoing, you know, southern coast vibe. There is, and, and actually I can uh, do a little bit of a comparison for you, if you like, Rick, because I know the Costa del Sol in Spain pretty well by living there, uh-huh. and then also kind of comparing it to what the Algarve has. There's really, you know, if the Costa del Sol is so developed and overrun right. uh, with just the same kind of tourists, but it's just more developed. And so you go to the Algarve and you get a much more relaxing experience. There are expats there. Yeah. There's, lot, there's people, there's Dutch, there's British, there's people from yeah. everywhere. But it's on a much smaller scale and yeah. there's not nearly as many high rises. You know, when it, because it's on a much smaller scale, I think they there's an attitude that they're going to mix in a little better because there's mm. so many Belgians in this Belgian favorite town on the Costa del Sol sure. and so many Dutch and so many Germans and so many Brits that they become British enclaves or yeah. German enclaves that are looking f- not for a change in culture but for a change in weather and a nice beach. Sure. That's the Spanish Costa del Sol. That is. You don't find that really on Not the as much Portuguese. and remembered Portugal. And a lot of the little hotels happen to be run by British expats, which means there's no communication problems. That's true, and yeah. So like, we, we like, get a good hotel experience or a good it, homestay experience. For sure. And, uh, and there's no problem with communication either. I, and that, that, that <laughs> helps a lot. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Robert Wright and Christina Duarte. We're talking about the south coast of Portugal, the Algarve, and let's just close with your, your favorite Algarve moment. Robert, if you would just wanted to capture one iconic experience or, or one unforgettable memory on the Algarve, what would it be? I think for me it was the very first time I went out to Cape Sagres. Hmm. So um, growing up in the United States and then moving to Europe and like hearing all these stories of exploration and Henry knowing the Navigator. Henry the Navigator and everybody who went out and to actually physically see 
the sunset right there on the Cape. Looking uh, out at the sea looking where out at they the didn't Atlantic, know there was dragons out there. Didn't know what was there and just looking out west and knowing that, wow, there's a lot of space between here and where I'm from. Yeah. <laughs> Standing on what feels like the tip of it, the earth. It really does feel like the end of the earth. Yeah. Oh, mm. my. Christina. For me, it's like, uh, well, as family vacation. Yeah. And uh, it's a wonderful place to take the children and as a, as a family just looking to the kids and seeing how much fun they are having at nine o'clock in the evening when it is still light and they are digging holes in the sand and just having the time, their time to be children and just discovering on the rocks the little shells and the clams and the, the stars. All that makes part of it. Um, They're putting together the little pieces that when they're your age, they'll look back and think, exactly. my mother and father yeah, gave exactly. me a beautiful childhood. Yes, that's what we, we like to take our children for, is like also building the mosaic of their memories. And uh, as young at heart travelers, as kids at, at heart with a passport, yes. we can all enjoy that. Yes. We can put together those memories Definitely. we'll cherish for yes. the rest of our lives. Cristina Duarte, Robert Wright, obrigado. De nada. Obrigado. Bon dia. Bon dia. Bon dia. How's my Portuguese? Good. Yes. That, that's all of it. I, I just that's exhausted great. it right there. <laughs> we are not very demanding either. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing I love about Portugal. <laughs> Wasn't he a nice young tourist? He said bon dia and he said obrigado. That's all you need. Next, we dive into the culture of Fiji in the South Pacific. And later in the hour, we'll check in to hear how you've been holding up, even as you've had to readjust your travel plans around border closures. Thanks for coming along in our journey each week on Travel with Rick Steves. Fiji, it's your quintessential South Pacific getaway. Tropical, unspoiled, gorgeous, pristine beaches. But what's unique about Fiji is the strength of its indigenous communities and how traditional lifestyles and, and, and cultural sensibilities are a part of your visit. And we're going to learn about that right now as we're joined by Minal Hadratwala. And Minal is the author of The Moon Guidebook to Fiji. Minal, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Rick. You write the book on Fiji. And reading through your book, it really occurred to me, Fiji is unique in the South Pacific because of the strength of its indigenous communities. Uh, how did Fiji come to be such a, a special place in that regard? Fiji has a really unique colonial history. It was colonized very late and then uh, fairly briefly, and the Fijian people were not ever enslaved or forced uh, labor en masse. There were, there were instances of that, certainly through the colonial history, but in general, the Fijian people retained ownership of their land, and their stewardship in terms of the environmental impacts on their land is really just such an inspiration and something that I think in this age where we're all becoming conscious of climate change and environmental stewardship, something that we can all learn mm. from. That sounds wonderful. Is that unusual in the South Pacific? What's the opposite extreme? Are there some island nations that are, are basically completely foreign-owned? Sure. I mean, the the really extreme opposite is... Uh, Noire, which was colonized and mined for phosphate and is now basically uninhabitable. And Fiji, ha and there are a number of islands in the South Pacific that have been rendered uninhabitable either through 
that kind of, you know, devastating colonial impact or climate change. And Fiji has actually been a leader in taking in refugees from those islands. So there are uh, places where, you know, you have whole villages that are resettled from other island nations. So that is interesting just from a tourism point of view, because that's a big industry and a big employer. The island's Fiji, for example, that had the indigenous control that took care of their environment, did not sell their soul to international um, economic interests, they're the ones that today would have, understandably, the most thriving tourist industry. Yes, and they're really working hard to protect their natural uh, heritage as well. There's a very interesting model that has been pioneered in the last decade in Fiji where the local communities are taking over and protecting their own waters. Mm -hmm. And this uh, local marine management system has become a model throughout the South Pacific because in the old days, what used to happen is that when a tribal chief passed away, the tribe would set aside uh, the waters, a segment of the waters, and say there's no fishing in this area for a certain number of months. And then after that period, They would fish those waters, which, of course, would then be replenished and uh, have an enormous feast to honor the chief who had passed away. These were called tambu uh, areas. Hmm. And what they have done now is that they've designated tambu areas uh, with the cooperation of the tribes and the chiefs. The chief doesn't have to die. Uh, They decide, okay, this portion of our waters is not going to be fished ever and they set it aside either temporarily and they rotate it or permanently as a sanctuary area, and then the warriors of the tribe police and protect that area. Do you ever think very much about how, it's kind of ironic, in the past, societies uh, in, here in, in North America or in South Pacific that had a, embraced indigenous values, it was kind of charming and idealistic, but not really in keeping with the times, But now when we we get to where we are today, we look back and we see that the societies that are thriving are the ones that did embrace these kind of hippie, religious, indigenous, cultural sensibilities, and the ones that are struggling and even failing in the case of a lot of other island nations in the South Pacific are the ones that completely sold out to modern economics. Yeah, and some of them, you know, didn't have much choice in that selling out either. Some of them were just taken over and, you know, uh, by force. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think that Western societies have a lot to learn from. We can learn. It's practical. Values. It's not just idealistic. It's, it's practical because uh, it is. Fiji is living off the land that it was blessed with. Yes. And in, in Fiji, there is this concept called mana, uh, which is the spirit of something. And it's an integrated concept from what I understand as a non-indigenous person. Um, so my understanding may also be incomplete. But from what I understand, it has to do with the integrated spirit of the land and everything that lives on the land and also the wind and the stone and things that maybe from a Western perspective we might consider non-sentient. But Mm. all of that is an integrated and spiritual presence that is very much alive for Fijian people. And I think when you look at something holistically, then you can understand really how to how to work with it and not devastate one part of it in the interest of another part of it. So this is mana, M-A-N-A, the spirit of the islands. And it, it takes a little humility, I think, for humans to recognize that, yes, we're all together. We have to respect all the life, the land, and, and the, 
that's something that is woven into the sensibilities of the indigenous people in Fiji. Yes, and we're not greater than the shark or the turtle or the smallest little goby fish. Oh, them's fighting words from my American (laughs) upbringing. I love that idea that uh, the best way to control nature is to obey her. And I think Mm. that's part of the Fijian outlook. We're learning about the culture and customs of Fiji right now on Travel with Rick Steves with Minal Hadratwala. She's the author of The Moon Guidebook to Fiji. Minal also writes about her family's longtime connections with Fiji in Leaving India, My Family's Journey from Five Villages to Five Continents. She posts essays, poems, and musings on her website, minalhadratwala.com. That's M-I-N-A-L-H-A-J-R-A-T-W-A-L-A. So when you when you want to get to Fiji as somebody who's dreaming of going there, it's remarkably straightforward. You just fly nine hours from the west coast of the United States. It's a direct, nonstop flight. You don't need a, um, a visa. You, know, you just have your passport, and people speak English, and you're on your way. And there's a, a big island, and there's about 100 inhabited islands, and you can island hop. You can enjoy all sorts of tropical outdoor activities and, and wonderful food. But what, what Fiji has is that extra dimension of this very vibrant traditional culture. And that's our challenge as we go to Fiji, and that can distinguish our trip in Fiji. How are we going to connect with that that village life, those traditional communities? And, and I know there's some etiquette that we have to be mindful of. Yeah, so the village etiquette uh, that a tourist would encounter is called a sevu-sevu ceremony. And basically, this is a ceremony that either if you're traveling on your own, that you would go into a village and you would ask to uh, speak to someone who, and anyone could lead you to the right place. Uh, You know, even a small child, if you say, I'm visiting and I want to present a gift to the chief, the child wouldn't be able to take you to the right place. Um, If you're in a more orchestrated environment, if you're a tourist on a cruise ship or at a hotel, then they would take you as a group and you would together do the Sevu Sevu ceremony. And what it is, is you basically present a gift to the chief. Uh, usually the gift is a bundle of kava or yangona root, uh, which is a sort of mildly sedative, hallucinogenic root uh, that is turned into a drink. And then you drink the root together. Uh, they have a special way that they pound it and they filter it and mix it with water and share it in a communal bowl, and both parties drink. No, I didn't realize. I thought it was just a gift, but it's a gift, and then you immediately share it. It is, yes. It's a it's a gift, and then you share part of it, and the remainder stays with the tribe. So it's 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 almost like you bring some marijuana and you and you roll a joint together <laughs> and you smoke it and you all get mellow, and then you say welcome. Yes, and there's but there's a spiritual dimension and a respect dimension as well. So oh, well, that's certain, what I mean. It's almost you know, like marijuana, right? Yeah. You get uh, you get briefed by the uh, by your you know interloper so that you don't uh, you don't, for example, sit with your feet pointing the wrong way or walk past a chief if he's sitting. Then you wouldn't stand. You would also, you know, stay low to the ground and so on. So there's how, how you wear, how you present yourself. You you take off your hat, mm-hmm. take off your footwear. Uh, I interrupted you about the kava ceremony. So you're coming here. You brought your little bag of kava and you've given it to the the chief. What happens then? Then uh, there are usually some men who are part of the the chief's sort of 
you know, entourage, and they'll go through the process of grinding it into a powder and then mixing it with the water, filtering it, and then you share the drink and the chief welcomes you to the village and, you know, lets you know that you're welcome to stay and enjoy uh, the village and the land and water around the village in whatever way you have requested. So tourists actually drink this with the chief? Yes, yes. And it's also, kava is also a social drink. So Mm -hmm. people drink it in all kinds of situations. Now in the five-star hotels, you can also get fancy kava cocktails and uh, and you, you can even like buy a, it in the United States. It as has a powder a, uh, and, an effect that is the opposite of coffee. Yes. it's um, The first thing that you usually feel is that your tongue goes numb, and then you feel very mellow and relaxed. And if you keep having more and more, then you might get some kind of hallucinogenic effect. And where do you buy your kava? You can buy it as a beverage. Uh, you can also buy it as a powder or you can go to any vegetable market anywhere in Fiji and buy the root itself as a bundle. Okay, now th- there's another concept that's a big part of your visit to Fiji called bula, bula time. And that seems to be related to kava because it's just, you know, take it easy, be relaxed, enjoy the moment. Yes, you know, one of the reasons that the Indians ended up coming to work in Fiji is that the British found the Fijians to be too relaxed to make good workers for them. Um, And so bula is part of that ethos. Um, Bula is just a word. It means hello, uh, greetings, how are you? And uh, it's as soon as you step off the airplane, you'll hear someone will say bula to you. You'll hear it uh, all day, every day. And bula time is considered to be kind of a way of admonishing tourists to relax and allow things to unfold in their own time, not to be too unscheduled and too uh, impatient with things, which is something that Americans often need. (laughs) It's a country made up of some 300 islands surrounded by clean and warm ocean waters. We're learning about the culture of Fiji right now on Travel with Rick Steves with Mino Hadratwala. She's written the Moon Guidebook to Fiji, we have a link to her work with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. This is really interesting. So when the British came, they wanted to make money. It's the only reason the British came was to make money. Of the, course. The local people were just too relaxed and easygoing and, you know, let's do it tomorrow. So the, the Brits actually imported people from India to do the hard work because they weren't quite in that into Kava and Bula. And that's why today about a third of the population is Indian heritage. Yes, that's correct. And, you know, the Indians who came were indentured, so many of them were kind of tricked. They didn't quite realize they were going that far away from India and that they would be doing hard labor on plantations. So uh, I don't know that they would have volunteered to sign up for that kind of labor either. I doubt it. This is so fascinating. What about gay rights in an island like Fiji? Can can gay travelers feel comfortable? Yeah, that's a good question. because I, I know that legally it's it's in, in Fiji is not that progressive. Yes. So it's not illegal in Fiji. Uh, there's no anti-gay legislation. Uh, at the same time, there's no gay marriage and there's no specific rights. Uh, there's no non-discrimination policy and all of that. It's kind of one of those middle places. Uh, there's a very conservative religious element in Fiji, both uh, among the indigenous Fijians who are mostly Christian and among the Indian Fijians 
who are mostly Hindu and Muslim. And a lot of that conservative religious element is pretty anti-gay. Mm-hmm. Um, the prime minister of Fiji was quoted a few years ago as saying that if gay people wanted to get married in Fiji, they should just go off to Iceland or somewhere else, uh, that it was never going to happen in his lifetime in Fiji. And that Wait a said, minute, that's, a, not, that's not very Bula. That's not very Bula at all. Hmm. Uh, and that said, there's a vibrant uh, gay rights community. There uh, is visibility. Um, the gay and transgender people have been in Fijian communities forever, of course. Mm-hmm. And my experience is that villages the world over are generally pretty accepting. You can be anything mm-hmm. within your own village, even if people may not quite like it or they may look sideways mm-hmm. at it. But there is a, a kind of way that a village holds everybody within it. Um, yeah. in, particularly in the tourism industry, you will find a lot of gay people uh, working because it is a place that they can uh, kind of you know leave the conservative society to some extent and mm-hmm. have a little more cosmopolitan exposure. And given the inclination of the locals to be conservative and the, and the Muslim and Hindu and Christian uh, faith of the people there, uh, what sort of modesty concerns should visitors have? Because I, I think a lot of times travelers are sort of not very sensitive or thoughtful to what are the, the local uh, considerations? You know, it's, it's not just one mm-hmm. beach party. Right. So I think Fijians are pretty used to you know, tourists doing their thing in tourist spaces. So people wear bikinis and everything on the beach and so on. But if you're in the towns, you would want to dress uh, in, you know, a proper shirt and pants or shorts. Mm-hmm. And there is not very much public display of affection in Fiji, even heterosexual. So people would not generally be, uh, you know, kissing or making out in right. front of other people. So that's something that I would also say to respect. This is all very important, and it's a good reason to have a guidebook because you might not know this if you didn't have some information, and and that's, I'm sure, one of the reasons you've written The Moon Guidebook to Fiji. Absolutely. We've been talking with Meenal Hajwatwala, and we've been learning about Fiji. And Meenal, if we could just wrap up with a favorite moment that a visitor, with your help, might enjoy experiencing that mana spirit of Fiji. So on Taviuni Island, which is the garden island, um, there is a dive master named Annie. And Annie was one of the first Fijian divers to map the reefs of Fiji. And so there's a dive site named after her. And I was lucky enough to go with Annie on her boat to her dive site and uh, see her talk about her her diving in the early days of diving being explored in Fiji and the connection that she had to not only the island, which was her home, but the water, which was also her home. And that was very special to me, that she knew the water, she knew the fish, she knew the tides, she knew the, you know, tiny little nematodes that live in the water. It was just all her home, and it wasn't the way that we think of my home as my house on this piece of land. It was a much wider and broader sense of home than anything that I had experienced in my life. Hmm. And that's that beautiful mana spirit, that tradition of respecting the oneness of creation, the people, the land, and all the life. Very special place. Meenal Hajwatwala, thank you so much for inspiring us to take a better and a more thoughtful look at Fiji. Thank you, Rick. I really enjoyed it. 
Up next, we want to hear what this pandemic has taught you. We're at 877-333-RICK or radio at ricksteves.com. After a year and a half of waiting, worry, and wondering, how have you been getting through this COVID-19 pandemic? How has it impacted your own travel plans? And what has this unusual time in our world taught you? Right now, let's check in with our Travel with Rick Steves listeners to hear how you've been doing. We're at 877-333-7425, and by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Judith has given us a call from Atlanta. Judith, how are you doing during the pandemic? Well, I've actually been doing very well. Mm -hmm. I've been working from home, and I've just been, um, you know, readjusting my travel dreams to focus on countries where my grandparents emigrated from. And also, I've been savoring all the wonderful travel memories that I've I've had going to Europe. I've been doing the same thing. It's I didn't realize what a treasure those travel memories are. And I've been reading through old journals, and they've just been sparking memories that had slipped away. And we really have a lot to be thankful for when we've had the privilege and the opportunity to travel in the past. And we can also dream about travels coming up. Uh, what's your heritage? Where are you thinking of going to the old country? Well, Scandinavia, uh, Sweden, my grandmother... She was an orphan, and she was adopted. So I would love to learn more about, see if I could find where her family is in Sweden. And uh, Scotland, my mother, her family came from Ireland, but they actually were from Scotland. If you do your homework and you do a little, you know, a little studying and preparation, even if your immediate relatives have passed away or are no longer there, uh, you can find more distant relatives who are, I think, fascinated and, and, and thrilled to meet uh, a long-lost cousin from the United States. Oh, that would be so exciting. I do have some genealogy that some of my cousins have done. You know, I, I do need to dig into that more. Yeah. And um, I, I remember that would be very cool. I had so much fun looking up relatives in Sweden myself, and uh, I used to joke, if you don't have relatives, uh, just make up a name and get out a phone book and give somebody a call. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's a great idea. Especially, well, wherever our, our relatives have come from, whatever country or continent, uh, it's a great opportunity to go back and check them out. So I hope that you can do that soon, and, and right now we just do need to be patient and diligent, and we will travel again. And I hope you can go visit those relatives in Sweden and Scotland. Thank you. I appreciate you taking my call. Take care, Judith. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Bye. Peggy's on the line from Mitchell in Oregon. Hey, Peggy, thanks for your call. Oh, you're you're welcome. Hi. Hello. How have you been doing during this pandemic? Well, we live on a ranch in the middle of rural Oregon, so we had already become used to self-isolation. <laughs> well, I guess that's easier for some people than others because it's yeah. kind of your norm. Uh, yeah, it's sort of our norm. So it wasn't um, too bad of a, a change for us, but the um, trip to Morocco when they closed down due to the pandemic was probably an experience of a lifetime. So you were in Morocco when things started shutting down. Wow. Yeah. It was it was pretty amazing. We um, ended up uh, cutting our tour short, um, and the hotel that we were in in Marrakesh said, you need to find another place to stay. We're shutting down. Hmm. So even the hotel was kicking us out. <laughs> so what did you do? Well, the first thing that we did was try to get a hold of someone in the embassy and the consulate there. 
mm-hmm. um, and we didn't get any help um, mm. from our own government. You, you know, you sort of go internationally mm-hmm. and you think, oh, mm-hmm. well, we'll be taken care of because right. they, they have people in all these countries that take care of U.S. citizens. Right. Um, but the embassy basically said, you got to deal with the consulate, and the consulate was so understaffed, and they were trying to mm. get, you know, 3,000 Americans Mm. responded to and they just they just couldn't they were they didn't have the staff so they were overwhelmed you were essentially on your own how did you manage to uh, get home and and uh, be safe well the good thing is is that um there were 10 girlfriends and most of us came from a marketing background Mm -hmm. so we started a media blitz we contacted local television stations the news we actually even got on good morning america and the wall street journal did an article our state representatives actually were the best. They were the ones that really helped us to get the context that we needed to try to figure out how to get on a flight out. And the only flights that were going out were for European citizens, not American citizens. Hmm. So, I, I mean, it was very stressful. We, we were also told, you know, you need to, to uh, rent a Riyadh for a month and just hunker down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, well, a lot, of, a lot of us thought that's going to be a few weeks or something, but it went on and on and on and... There's people have been stuck in pretty bizarre situations, like for for months on end. Yes, yeah, hunkering down, especially in a foreign country. No, um, <laughs> it's not what you should do. So, yeah. so you got you flew to Europe, and then what was it like changing planes and arranging your flight from Europe back to Oregon? Well, um, we had one of one of our contacts um, was able to work online in the U.S. with airlines to get us out because. Mm-hmm. They, the phones were busy. You couldn't get through to the um, the European airlines. Mm-hmm. So she was able to get us all tickets out on different airlines um, and at different times just because getting out was so difficult. And oh, then, so you just uh, broke up at that point and you'd say, let's take anything that gets us back to the States, anywhere in the States, and we'll find our way back to our home from there. Absolutely. We right. figure if, if we're on the East Coast... If needed, we can get in a car and drive. Just get on a flight and get back to the States. Did you all manage to not pick up COVID through all of this? You know, we didn't. We had just heard inklings about this COVID thing Mm -hmm. before we left. And so most of us had, you know, uh, surgical masks. Some of us had N95s, um, and we were all wearing them. The the most exposure was in the airport in Marrakesh, where there were just... You know, so many people trying to get out of the country. Oh, yeah, that's that must have been horrific because people know this is risky, but they've got to get on that plane, and you just got to, it's kind of like hold your breath and, and hope that you get home, but you got to do it, don't you? Yes, yeah. In yeah. fact, when we arrived in Marrakesh, um, our tour guide told us that we needed to get to the airport. So we went to the airport in the afternoon, oh, right. and they basically told us, you know, there's there's no flights out. So then um, the next morning at 2 o'clock in the morning, um, we were told that the airport had opened up and that you needed to go there. It was going to give you your best chance. But still, mm-hmm. the airport itself didn't help us. It was actually someone in the United States getting online and being able to, to work through everything to find flights out. So you went to the airport not knowing what plane you would be on? We didn't even know if we'd be able to get out. Yeah, but you did go to the airport because then you can turn on a dime. If something opens up, you can hop on it. Yeah, well, that's really, I think, smart in a situation like that. And I think one lesson is, you know, the embassy and the consulate, they do what they can, but I've heard many times they're not an American 
traveler's resource if, if you're having a tough time on your trip. They just oftentimes can't handle that. So it's just Well, yeah, uh, it's just difficult. They, were, they were understaffed. I mean, you know, all of us yeah. think that that's the purpose, yeah. <laughs> the purpose for them, and, and it is not. So. Right. All right. Well, Peggy, I'm glad you and your friends got back, and it sounds like you're going to be ready to travel again when it's safe and the coast is clear, and we will travel on. Thanks, Peggy, for your call. Hey, thanks, Rick. Have you a bet. good day. Bye now. What has living through a pandemic taught you? How has it impacted the travels you've been hoping to enjoy? We're at 877-333-RICK as we hear from you right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. And Lynn in Tamarack, Florida has written us and she writes, I don't need more clothes. I need intellectual stimulation. Zoom for adult education and universities has been a lifesaver. I now think Americans are weak. We have all the comforts in the world, and yet so many can't handle confinement or masks. I used to wonder if Americans could handle a tragedy which would force them to become refugees in another country. This has shown me that too many of us don't really have the right stuff. Voila, I think my comments are too controversial for an upbeat program like Rick Steves, but that's the conclusion I honestly came to. Well, Lynn, thanks for sharing your thoughts on how we as a society need to buck up and get through this pandemic with diligence and with patience and looking out for each other. Another email comes from Larry in Boston. Over the past year, what the pandemic has taught me is how similar we all are. The disease doesn't know race, language, religion, or culture. We have seen the best and the worst of people, and we have also seen the humanity. How can we emerge from this? And when we travel, or even just when we go back to normal activity in our local communities, how can we remember that we are all human and we are all in this together? Wow, beautiful sentiment, Larry. Thank you very much. And let's talk to Karen, who's calling in from Monterey in California. Thanks for your call, Karen. Hi, Rick. Uh, Good to talk to you. Uh, Our experience was different, but not that far different from your previous caller. Um, We were actually living in Italy at the start of the pandemic in Mm -hmm. northern Italy. Mm -hmm. And we had plans to travel Sicily, Italy, Croatia, Belgium, UK, on our way back to the U.S. as we caught the Queen Mary II with our 90-pound dog back to the U.S. in August. Well, as the pandemic unfolded, Italy went under lockdown, and we were locked down for strict lockdown for eight weeks. And the dominoes of our well-planned trip kept falling and falling and falling. So all of a sudden, all your travel plans are canceled and you're stuck in Italy? First of all, tell me about the eight weeks of strict lockdown, because I think that's really interesting. So we could only leave the house. One person could leave the house at a time, or apartment, and either go to the hospital, go grocery shopping, or go to the pharmacy. Mm -hmm. Or in our case, we could take our dog out to do his business. Hmm. But we could not walk more than 250 meters from our house. I've, I've, I've heard, by, I've actually, heard by the way, Karen, that dogs were in high demand in Italy because it gave you an opportunity to go out if you needed to. If you had a dog, exactly. you had a little, little extra and fresh air. apparently there ah. were many people who took turns taking their dog out. Their dogs probably lost weight while everyone else gained weight. <laughs> Good. Okay, well, eight weeks of serious lockdown. Where were you at this time? We were in Verbania, Italy, on Lago Maggiore. Oh, Lago Maggiore. So that's up in kind of resort area in the north of Italy on those beautiful lakes. And then things started opening up after that two months of strict lockdown, and you just managed to make lemonade out of lemons. 
we did. We decided we would go see parts of Italy that we'd maybe seen before, maybe not have seen before, but saw it with Italian tourists and no crowds. Uh, we went to Venice, and when we were up in the balcony of St. Mark's, we could count five people on the square. Wow. Uh, we went to Cinque Terre, and we were on a train platform waiting for a train for 15 minutes without a soul. <laughs> Two experiences you will never get otherwise. I mean, on that balcony in Venice on St. Mark's Square up on top of the church, you look down and it is a sea of people and you saw an empty square. It was an empty square. <sighs> we would be, we would sit in an outdoor restaurant and we were the only people sitting in the restaurant. So we got to travel. We did four separate trips over the course of June through September. And then about in October, when COVID started going up, we kind of made the decision, we need to figure out how to get back to the States, because the plan was always to come back in 2020. So we ended up using a freight pet relocator to get our barley back to the States, because he's 90 pounds, not can't be in cabin. And that was quite the challenge. Italy actually did an embargo on pets. So then that everything blew up once again, and we had to reschedule and it turned out on, we ended up coming back on November 25th. What a on, story. I should have said, instead of making lemonade out of lemons, you made lemoncello out of lemons. And you really, exactly. it sounds like you enjoyed. And Italy, exactly. that nobody will ever again be able to experience. Of course, it was a difficult time for Italy. Uh, and thank goodness you made it through healthy and safe. And you got home and, and ready to put that trip back together again when, when everything settles down. Yep. Since we've gotten back, We've kind of hunkered down. Our plans this summer are to do a road trip. We need to be but patient. We need to be patient. Flexibility yeah. is what we've learned. <laughs> flexibility, patience, and right now it's a matter of all of us getting our vaccinations. And in due time, we will be traveling again. Hey, Karen, thanks so much. That's an amazing story. For the rest of your life, you'll be able to wow people with that one. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, take care. Bye. Good talking to you. Bye. You too. Our Travel with Rick Steves listeners are sharing their thoughts and experiences of living through months of closures during the global pandemic. You can email your thoughts to us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. And here's an email from Scott in Chicago. This pandemic has shown me I don't have any friends, only a handful of acquaintances. If I did realize it, I would have strengthened the relationships I had. It has also shown me how much theater and travel define me. It took both those passions to disappear before realizing it. I love theater. It's my love and my passion, my reason for being. Travel is a close second to those feelings. I am extremely lucky to have the means to do both. This past year, I've hung on to the hopes to do both again. And I think I realized I need to schedule those big once-in-a-lifetime trips, like Egypt or New Zealand, that always seem to be put off for something easier. Wow, Scott, you've been doing some good thinking, and I think this is a great time for all of us to do some thinking as we endeavor to come out of this pandemic better for it and more thoughtful. And Michael's on the line from Boston Lake in New York. Hey, Michael. How are you, Rick? Doing great. How are you? I'm living the COVID dream. Well, you know, if you're living, you've you got something to be thankful for there. And if you've got some travel right. dreams that you're nurturing, I, you know, COVID can derail our travel plans, but it's not going to stop our travel dreams. No, no. Um, my wife and I are both teachers. I teach history. My wife teaches French. And huh. we plan trips often and actually had trips planned the last two summers. 
uh, with COVID changing those, but all it's done really is allowed us more time to kind of look into everything else that's out there and kind of expand really the kind of interest that we have in traveling. You know, I've been working on that same thing myself. I've got this notion of uh, employing a traveler's mindset right here at home. And we can do that by traveling vicariously different ways and celebrating different cultures and history and so on. Yes, I I completely agree. Uh, As I said, my wife and I have, uh, and thank you for this, we've both used your videos in our our classroom. Oh, good. Are Are you using the Classroom Europe program that we made? Yes, yes. Well, I, I just would love to plug this. It's a free gift we've made for teachers, and it's taken our 150 TV shows and broken them into 500 little teachable clips. And I just love the thought that history teachers like you and French teachers like your wife can uh, take advantage of that and help take their students traveling as they teach. Yes, th- that program works so well with the sites that you see and the history that you give. Um, and with our having the opportunity to share those, Um, We can explore, if you will, a lot of different places that we wouldn't have on a trip simply just because of sticks. That's that's great. So So now as a history teacher, how, how, how are you incorporating this time we're living through? Are you, is there any sort of connection that you're sharing with your students? Yes. Uh, it's, we're actually covering the middle ages that we were talking about the plague and, and how people were. Uh, really afraid and, and doing a lot of natural social distancing. Um, obviously, times were different, so yeah. it wasn't quite as interconnected, but social distancing and kind of uh, separating themselves from people who they knew were ill or people who they knew were traveling um, and just making a lot of connections with today with the obvious updates of, of modern life. But Yeah. Do you, um, do, you, do you know the derivation of why we say bless you when somebody sneezes? I would love it if you would explain it. This might be fun for your students. This is a tour guide story, but uh, I believe it. It's, uh, in the, <laughs> I the, love those anyway. <laughs> the plague, which devastated so much of Europe. I mean, entire cities would lose a third of their population when this happened. The first sign of it was you would sneeze. And if somebody sneezed, people thought, well, that's the, the beginning of the end of this person. So bless you. <laughs> oh, okay, great. Yeah, well, so... Uh, not not great, but... No, great, but it's, it's, it's... I always love, you know, the... Humanize, humanize the history. Yeah, I, I call it the random knowledge, which yeah. the kids get a kick out of, but that's a, that's a lot of the interesting things. And yeah. I think that's one of the things that COVID has allowed me to do is kind of explore beyond beyond your mainstays, beyond the, the big headliners, if you will. Yeah, good for you for being a teacher. I've got so much respect for teachers. So thanks, Michael, and best wishes to you and your wife. Oh, thank you. All the best and keep on traveling. Keep on traveling, even if we're just staying home for a little while longer. Take care. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Kazmora Hall, and Donna Bardsley. We get promotion support from Sheila Gerzoff, website support from Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks for studio help this week to NPR in Washington and KERA Dallas. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, I share highlights of a lifetime of exploring Europe, my favorite experiences, sights, and encounters in 100 essays. Order your copy today at ricksteves.com.